Money FM 89.3, the best of your money. Money and me on your money, only on Money FM 89.3. What are the golden rules of investing? If you can't afford to invest, don't. Not yet. Set your investment expectations. Diversify. Take a long-term view. Be on top of your investments. But most importantly, understand what you're investing in. Swapnil Mishra is founder of WealthZen and adjunct mentor of Singapore Management University. He's also written a great book on getting started on your investment journey. Good morning, Swapnil. Good morning, Michelle. How are you? I'm doing really well. How well do you think people understand the key terminology of uh, investment products before they put their money down? I think the understanding is uh, it's, it's very similar to the wealth divide. There are a few people who understand these things really well, but there's a large number of people who don't understand. Well said. Really, really well said. So when it is, uh, when it does come down to, I suppose, diversifying access to yeah. understanding what these financial products, how they're structured, what they're all about, what do you think are some of the key terminologies we really need to know? If you break it up into just the kind of uh, instruments and the kind of uh, methods through which you can invest, these yeah. two would be the, I would say, two main boxes of uh, or categories of understanding terminologies. So, you know, when you say stocks, bonds, um, um, mutual funds, ETFs, these are all uh, instruments which you can invest in and buying it through a bank, through a broker, through an online platform, through a robo-advisor, you know, those are methods of doing it. Mm. It's just an example of these two categories. Okay, so understand what you're investing in. Are you buying a bond? Are you buying stock? Are you buying an ETF? And then how are you basically putting your money down in return for that asset? Uh, can you walk us through the different ways that we can invest, Swapnil? So uh, the, the good thing that has happened is for this entire journey in terms of terminology as well, a lot of information is now available. You can, you know, and then thanks to infographics, you can really learn very quickly uh, about all these instruments. I would say one key thing to, you know, you know, on embarking on this journey is to not jump into the decision, should I buy this product or not buy this product? And I think because we accelerate the entire journey into straight away saying, uh, I want to double my money and is mm -hmm. this what I need to buy for that? Mm -hmm. That not only it, it, it gives, uh, it exposes you to risk, it also takes away the opportunity to learn. Mm. So if, if, you're, if you want to learn, it is, it is important to segregate and say, first I want to understand what I'm buying. I want to understand how I can buy this instrument. And then comes the part that is this the right product for me? Is this the right time for me? Is this the right amount for me? All that execution comes after. The first step is what I'm buying and uh, how in very simple terms. And how I'm buying, exactly. How am so I buying? And give yourself that time. Um, sort of like you, you're planning a big purchase and you give yourself a 48-hour sort of uh, break time to think things yeah. through. Um, maybe longer if it's financial product. Why, why do you say when it comes to simple products, they may not be as straightforward as they seem on paper? So, see, the complexity, the problem is the simplicity of a product and the complexity gets confused with the different kinds of risk that are there. Right? So, if, if you just take a very, uh, if you segregate, firstly, risk of price going up and down is a price risk. That is a different risk. Liquidity is a different risk, which is, whether I can buy this product and sell this product at you know at a very short notice, mm. and then the third aspect is the complexity of the product. 
complexity of the product is essentially and that is more and more a problem in today's day and age yeah because a lot of complexity is getting added on top of the core product or the core offering you have an example um let's take uh, uh, dbs uh, shares so you could have bought this stock in january at let's say whatever 36 dollars mm-hmm. and that's an example today the stock is down to 32 you can look at your portfolio and say okay i be, i bought this for 36 it is at 32 i have lost 4 dollars per share so you can see the outcome for yourself because the asset that you have bought the price is visible and you can see the price today and you know how much you paid as brokerage so this entire transaction while has a risk of losing money it is simple because you can see the entry and the exit and you can see what you bought and you can see the impact if you take this now as a dbs stock inside a structured product which has a coupon payment which is linked to a strike price yeah uh, then what happens is today if you look at your structured product which you are holding in your portfolio you don't really understand what is my risk what am i doing what am i going to make in the next 6 months in terms of the maturity so what happens is the price of the product that you are holding which is a complex structured product is derived on the basis of so many factors that it is very difficult for an investor to know and so the that complexity is what uh, makes decision making difficult for an investor because you are not able to see the link between the investment and the outcome that you have for yourself and that is the meaning of complexity Great ideas here on investing. We're pulling back the curtain, so to speak, on the complexity of the investment world. Hopefully, making it easier for you um, when you get started on your investment journey. So, don't be afraid to ask questions like, "How is the price of this product determined?" Is that a fair question to ask? Yes. Although, in most cases, uh, people won't know because it is really a very complex method, isn't it? Uh, there's yeah. a whole bunch of derivatives, mathematics involved. and uh, so so and and you have one fundamental risk with a complex product where it is not clear is the pricing it's a black box That's you it. don't know how much commission or how much margins you are paying mm. to buy that product so you have to think really hard that this is a product that i really want in my portfolio that's very important yeah is this okay let's talk a little bit about the people who are you know funneling or ensuring that you can get your hands on these assets right often you hear oh on your first trade you will get a 158 dollar bonus and then you deposit some money and you get even more of a bonus or you get a redemption if you if the value of the fund is less than this 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 so why there's so many discounts on the first trade and um if they seem like really attractive terms for a financial product what questions should you be asking so uh, giving discounts is uh, driven by uh, the same considerations that any business has which mm. is to acquire customers right so if you want to grow your business you want to acquire customers there's a customer acquisition cost and that cost is given in the form of a, a rebate or a discount or you know some kind of a sweetener which is which is uh, available from an investor's point of view of course it's an opportunity to capitalize right i mean all of us remember when grab and gojek came the side hailing <laughs> services how how inexpensive it was because they were giving massive discounts to encourage people to start using those products or services so investors should i mean it's, it's an opportunity a discount is always uh, a valuable thing mm. uh, two things i would say to consider one is to be aware of lock ins So a discount is good but if it is locking you in then you have to remember that you are giving up something in terms of a liquidity premium and so you have to you should so it, it is basically you should not get locked in without realizing that you are locking into you know a platform or a product 
for a long time without knowing. Okay, figure out how long you are going to have to continue to pay for this after Correct. the discount ends. Very key Correct. question there. Um, is the investment world filled as well with salespeople that you think investors should learn to navigate? <laughs> they are human beings too, and <laughs> they are doing a job. So I think I don't think there is anything um, anything fundamentally wrong with. Uh, a salesperson or, or somebody who's uh, very uh, pushy in their job because they're just trying to work hard uh, to make a living. I think that's not the issue. The issue really is that they have a clear agenda because they have a product to sell, they have business to grow, they have access to acquire. So they are very focused and centered on that. As an investor, it is your responsibility to be focused on your agenda. What is the investor's agenda? The investor's agenda is, am I getting the best product? Am I getting it at the best price? And is this the right thing for me? So you, it is very important for the investor to push that agenda forward and challenge any fact uh, or assumption that is being uh, displayed or demonstrated in a fact sheet or verbally expressed and challenge that. So, you know, the, uh, if salesperson says, hey, we think this is, you know, very cheap. So you say, okay, can you show me a comparison? Can you tell me how this compares with four other products? Mm. So if you, so the responsibility of asking this question, in my view, um, rests with the investor and, um, and, and then the salesperson has to answer and it's a good way to verify whether your, uh, the person who's selling is well-informed or not well-informed and it'll give you some confidence as well. So I think the, the uh, taking responsibility for your agenda, which is protection of your assets and getting the best deal for yourself is your responsibility as an investor. So you have to ask. Trouble is, there's an information asymmetry. You know, it's it's hard to advocate for yourself with this person because you're depending on this person to translate all the uh, verbiage to you. Do you know what I mean? So, yeah. So a simple uh, trick for this is to meet three people one after the other. By the third meeting, mm. you would have learned from the first two meetings. <laughs> 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 I like that. I like that. Mm, you should have learned something by the end of the third meeting for yeah. sure. <laughs> so if you don't know a product, if you don't know anything about it, invest in the first two meetings just for asking questions, for getting your learning. Mm. And then in the third one, you actually say, okay, now I want to make a decision. So I'm going to ask tougher questions because now I know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, use it as an opportunity to educate yourself when it comes to uh, investment products. Okay, you say when it comes to determining product suitability, we can go beyond a one-dimensional approach. How do we do that? Yeah, actually, that is a, that's a really tough one. Um, I, I, can, I can kind of relate to the challenge even from a regulator's point of view. They want to compress everything down to a number because then it becomes easy to measure and monitor. So product suitability is a is is good in a way, but it's also dangerous. You know, you have a I have a score of three, the product has a score of three, and suddenly this product is considered suitable while we have missed out on so many other dimensions uh, of uh, risk. So compressing it into a number is uh, is 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 the is the danger with this uh, single dimension. What needs to be done is to decompress that and do some kind of outcome mapping or a scenario analysis. And through that process, really drill down into the risk of the underlying product in your situation. So you have to unravel the product in terms of scenarios. So this product is suitable to me, or at least as per the, uh, the, the, the risk uh, suitability number. But then you ask the question that, okay, in the next one year, what are the likely outcomes that are possible? So you're not predicting, mind you. You're not saying, can you give me a guarantee that this, uh, my money will grow by 20%. Right. You're saying, what is the likely scenario? What will happen if this event happens? What will happen if event two happens? 
So through that scenario, what you're doing is you are unboxing the risk which has been uh, compressed into just one number of number of five, let's say. And you know, five is considered high risk and I am a high risk investor. But it doesn't mean that I understand the risk and it doesn't mean that the product is right for me. Mm. To find that, you have to open it up. And that's that exercise of uh, scenario analysis, I feel, is a very good uh, approach to uh, unbox the outcome, possible outcomes in a product. I think that that's very sound as well, uh, scenarios, approaching scenarios. And maybe listen to the show again before you speak with your financial advisor to remind yourself uh, of the key questions you should keep in mind. I've always told Swapnil, he needs, we need chat Swapnil for uh, investment really. <laughs> To decisions. We can just type in our questions. Okay, so now I recently, I want to unbox this. I recently did a show tokenization, right? I wanted to understand, is this a whole new era of investing? The digital asset realm seems to be growing larger and larger. We know that a lot of finance players are moving in to capitalize on demand um, for people interested in this whole area of tokenization, right? Um, Can you help us understand from the investor perspective, Swapnil, what exactly can be tokenized in this day and age? Uh, what kind of assets could we see tokenized? I think uh, in terms of the, which asset can be tokenized, there is no uh, limit uh, because you're effectively converting the ownership title of any asset. I mean, you could have the racing horse, which can be tokenized, and uh, we can own a piece of that. A painting can be tokenized. Uh, I mean, real estate, of course, is one of the first ones that has been targeted because as an asset class, it's a popular asset class. So uh, both trophy assets, which is your paintings and these kind of things, or commodity kind of assets, which have a physical uh, difficulty. You can't, uh, you know, you can't buy two barrels of oil. It's difficult. So commodities, because of that reason, uh, uh, storage. Uh, trophy, because they are difficult to uh, buy because of their size. And real estate, because everyone wants to buy a piece of it. And uh, so, yeah, so in terms of the range of assets, everything is getting tokenized, which frankly poses a problem for the investor that do I really, why do I really want to own a piece of a painting? I mean, that's the question that I would be asking. Of course, we are all excited that, hey, I can own a piece of this. But uh, the next question becomes, do I really need it? It's seen as the next stage in decentralized finance, you know, getting you direct access to things that may have been too expensive for you to invest in before, uh, that painting or that racehorse or even, you know, fixed income products. What do you think investors need to be aware of in terms of the risk when they step into this whole area of tokenization? You wanted to give us some backstory on blockchain, the technology that is the backbone of tokenization, did you? Yeah, I mean, I I can, so we can, I mean, we can take an example of a real estate fund where there's a collection of properties and all the properties are put into a fund and then uh, there is a, a memorandum prepared and then lawyers will draft a document and on that basis you will subscribe. Now this whole process, in a way the same process is happening except it is now happening on a digital world where it is happening faster, it is happening in a simple manner, it is happening at a lower cost. So you still have the real estate, of course. That doesn't go anywhere. So from an investor's point of view, that still remains the most important thing. That's where the magic is. Uh, the blockchain and the token is just a method of execution. You are going to make money only if that real estate makes money. So that's kind of the magic. Rest is all the magician's assistant who's distracting. Um, when it comes to the uh, the uh, actual uh, putting it onto the the uh, the blockchain technology. So two aspects here, I think, which are and. I consider these two as the most uh, like valuable innovations that is happening. 
One is the concept of smart contract, because what you're doing is you are reducing the cost that is spent on lawyers, middlemen, various kind of agencies, and embedding the contract in the technology. So that's, I would say, smart contract is one crucial one. And um, the second is that by converting it into tokens, you're able to uh, break it down into smaller size, and those tokens have, uh, you can have different features added to it without really doing, again, a whole bunch of documentation. So smart contracts and the token, the kind of tokens that are possible. These two things make it interesting as a next step for execution when an investor is going to buy. Now, this whole exercise is done on a, uh, on a ledger which is visible, right? So which is that whole decentralized finance. Uh, honestly, as an investor's point of view, we are still at an early stage. And mm-hmm. early stage means a lot of people are coming into this at this stage. Some want to make a quick buck. Some want to scam. And some are just early adopters and curious and feel that, yes, this is something that we should do. So uh, you, you could be uh, you know, talking to somebody who's there for the different reasons. And that is why for investors, uh, it's, it's a bit, uh, uh, a lot of care is needed because these execution, this technology is definitely impressive. But people who are running it right now, you don't know what has uh, kind of, you know, what, why have they come to the party. Also, it's not clear what your voting or ownership rights are associated with the investment, is it? I mean, you know, the stakeholder model is quite clear when, when we talk about investing in equities, but with smart contracts, uh, it seems a little bit vague, at least from the outside. But see, this is a start. So I, I like the comparison of a smart contract to a vending machine. Hmm. Uh, imagine if a lawyer, how would a lawyer use a vending machine? Because vending machine is a smart contract. I put $1 in, there is an implicit contract that the machine is going to give me that bottle of water. Mm-hmm. As a lawyer, I would say, no, wait a second, I will give my $1 into an escrow account, I will draft a contract, and we'll have some conditions. <laughs> then, you know, you'll have a 35-page document protecting all kinds of risks that what is the machine tilts. <laughs> so, so, so the thing is, in a, in a smart contract, it is implicit inside the mechanism or the design of the machine that the, a dollar will come in. In 60 seconds, this bottle of water will be dispensed. If not, the dollar will come out. And and we have confidence. So, mind you, we are not scared when we put that $2 for that high juice. We have the confidence, right? And I think as, at, as this evolves, uh, blockchain and smart contracts will start generating that same degree of confidence. And that is where we will see a true transformation of uh, the financial industry, just the way we saw dematerialization or you know things like that in the past. And that's why a lot of lawyers are interested in this area, I think. (laughs) They got to get that tilt going uh, to ensure their survival. I don't want to alienate the lawyers listening to us. Swapnil, thank you so much for joining us. What is the title of that book and when will it be out? Uh, The book should be out sometime end of uh, August. We are the final stages uh, uh, with Epigram uh, publishing it. And uh, it's um, the title is, is, is long, but it's investing for... The clueless, the reckless, and overly cautious. <laughs> you could have just shortened it to investing for the clueless. You know? <laughs> so if you're clueless, you're confused, you're uh, very, very scared reckless. and cautious. <laughs> or you are you know, driven by greed and uh, you are you know, extremely reckless and aggressive. So it's the fear, the greed, uh, and uh, the confusion. So these emotions... Um, it's interesting because the book that you recommended right in the beginning, mm. uh, it, it kind of resonates with that. 
in the context of finance. Yeah, yeah, that book was. <laughs> Why didn't somebody tell me about this? I think your book has the same vibes, and nobody could accuse you of not covering all your bases when it comes to the emotions associated with investing. Swapnil, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. Thank you. He's Swapnil Mishra, founder of Wellsen, an adjunct mentor at the Singapore Management University, and author to be again. He's written a number of children's books, but his latest one on financial literacy um, and what you need to know to get started on your investment journey. It's a great one. Will be out in a couple of months. We'll keep you posted. Before acting on the information on Money FM, please consider if it's suitable for your own investment objectives, financial situation, and risk tolerance. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at audio.sg or download the audio app. That's A W E D I O, audio at the App Store and Google Play.